Hello and a very warm welcome to episode three of the CMO's Guide to China Marketing. My name's Stephen. I'm Mike. And every month we will bring you the latest insights, opinions and updates on all things China marketing before taking a deep dive into something that we think is fundamental to China marketing and something that all global CMOs need to know. And this month we're going to be looking at localization and what that means for your China marketing strategy. Mike, it's been a really busy month, I think, in Shanghai so far this month. We've seen some of the exhibition halls opening up again. We've had some quite significant events happening. We had the China International Import Export Show. A lot of big national governments and big companies taking part in that. We've had FHC or Food and Hotel China, which again, a really multinational affair. This week, there was some uh, toys and gaming exhibition on over in Pudong and the building and underground mining. So lots of heavy machinery moving around and stuff. Bustling month. Are we back to normal with exhibitions? Great point, Steve. I think it's amazing how quickly the exhibitions are recovering, actually. So... On one side, it's it's fantastic. I don't know how many international people actually managed to get over, but for sure we see recovery. And from what I saw, they were pretty busy at the fairs. Good feedback. Yeah, I mean, I saw quite a few foreign guests at the CIIE for sure. Um, I know we in the past we do some work for Department of International Trade over here, so we support them on bits and pieces. And this wasn't our project, but we're kind of in the loop on some of the stuff. And I had plenty of guests visiting their stands, so they were pleased. I think, though, there was quite a lot of visa hoops and COVID testing that you had to go through. And there were special conditions for delegates and guests, but it doesn't feel like something they're going to be able to roll out for every single trade show. I'm not sure we're quite back to that kind of business as usual for exhibitions and trade fairs as we were this time last year. Jing, is that fair to say? What, what I think it's going to be interesting is to see how well virtual exhibitions will do. Because I know a lot of people were starting to do virtual events, virtual exhibitions, and I think that's great. But now that the physical ones are back, I, I think it's going to end up somewhere as a mix between the two. Uh, certainly, there's some great technology powering these virtual events, but people also like to see each other face to face, and so that's that's how I feel. It's going to end up being a mix. Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely, and and just from kind of a, a a lifestyle level, I guess it was nice to see the hustle and bustle back again, and people getting excited about the exhibitions and what's going on. Great. Okay. So as ever with the CMO's Guide to China Marketing, we'll kick things off with what we like to call the China dumplings, all the news, views, and opinions from the last month that we think are pertinent to China marketing. So Mike, I've got our first China dumpling for us to discuss. I saw a really interesting piece. It was by Scott Tang in um, Campaign Asia this week. And he's been looking at the spread of business, I guess, and consumption around. It's it's getting away from Shanghai and Beijing. So for listeners who don't know, cities and the way they work in China, they're very much tiered. And in tier one, we have cities like like Shanghai, like Beijing, and then the smaller cities, you, you sort of move down the tier one scale. And we are seeing now a trend that lower tier cities are becoming much more trendsetters, 
these days. We're seeing a lot of kind of the social media trends actually originating away from the tier one cities and kind of and bubbling up elsewhere. There's also been a really interesting study by Morgan Stanley. And Morgan Stanley has predicted that by 2030, the consumption levels of these lower cities, lower tier cities will triple. So at some point, when they reach this point, they will then account for the lion's share of future domestic consumption in China. So this is quite an interesting swing, I think. Mike, what would, would you agree? It's always been interesting. People have been talking about tier two and tier three cities as potential targets for a long time. It's nothing new, uh, but to actually see some social media things starting from the cities and then coming into first tier cities is fascinating. And for those of you who haven't visited China, if you come to Shanghai and then you go to, let's say, a third tier city, it's it's basically like visiting another country altogether. It's completely different. Um, so for us marketers, I, I think the question is, all right, who are these people? How do we target them? Um, we know that they're using even different touch points, different channels than first tier cities and act in different ways. They've got different media behavior. So really, if you want to target those cities, you have to go and do stuff in those cities. I think on the last podcast, just to give us a plug for something that we discussed last time, we talked about China Insight Research. And I think it's it's kind of social and economic shifts like this that you're going to really start seeing the significance of that market research and supported by Insight Research really become more and more important to China marketing strategy. I, I think one of the things is to not underestimate those audiences, uh, but it's it's different from Shanghai. So you can't come to Shanghai or even Beijing and think that with that knowledge, you're going to conquer the world here. So you really need to dig down into those different groups. I think one great example is one of the channels, Pinduoduo, where people can do kind of a group purchase and they're actually doing this with their families in the third tier cities. So this channel is really taken off in second and third tier cities. And there's lots of these type of examples where channels like Pinduoduo start there and then start to infiltrate the first tier cities. Stephen, one thing I just read just this week is uh, LinkedIn's new report. It's on B2B marketing. Fantastic read. Isn't necessarily just for China, uh, but I think it's, it really does apply here. So they talked about brand building versus sales activation. Brand building being a long-term thing and sales activation being more short-term. So brand building being PR, advertising, big long-term things, content. While sales activation is more about uh, search engine marketing, PPC, and these type of things. Um, and they argued that you really need to have a balance between these two things. And I, I think that applies for China too. I think we can't get stuck doing short-term activation and then expect our brand to grow in the long-term so I think with something like that, something like, um, as you mentioned, the PPC is more the short-term stuff. So uh, the kind of Baidu pay-per-click activity would fall into that category. And I think you've mentioned when we've been chatting that WeChat would fall somewhere in between with that. Exactly. And I think another point is that uh, they said to take big bets on creative works better than taking small incremental bets. So we see this a lot. Maybe headquarters doesn't want the local China team to take a big bet and do something very creative and very local, but then they end up just doing small little things that don't really move the needle. So I think that's something we can think about uh, with our clients and that you as marketers can think about yeah. uh, when you're planning a China strategy. Yeah, makes sense. I saw a really interesting comment from Paul Everett, one of our, our partners over at TMP recently. Did you see that one? Yeah. So I think he was talking about 
it's actually uh, more of a spectrum. It's not two extremes of long-term, short-term brand that brand versus sales activation, which I think is a fantastic point. Yeah. So my next dumpling, um, we, and this comes from a interesting post by Statista this week, which I'll share on our social media and the podcast goes live as well. And they pointed out that in the West, we have the, the, the GAFAM tech giants who, who dominate the Western economies, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, and China has something very similar as is often the way with China marketing. It's the same, but a little bit different and, and unique. So we have in China here, we have what we call the bat companies, which is Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. And increasingly, the regulators and the government are taking an interest in these organizations. We are probably on the verge of some new antitrust laws being brought in. Um, the, the Chinese government stepped in recently on the IPO of the Alibaba affiliate and financial. And this is just kind of an, an interesting snippet, I think, because it's something that is pertinent to marketeers because it can be something that changes quite quick and impacts on your marketing strategy. Mike, how do you see it? it it's important to note that these three monster companies, they're playing against each other almost in every single channel, every single field. So you may not have heard of it, but they all have search engines. They all have social media buy-in. They've, they've got a bit of everything. Do they have corgis? I don't know, but we've got one. I think Cinnamon disagrees with some of the points. Cinnamon may disagree. Um, so the implications of this anti- of possible antitrust or monopoly laws uh, could be huge if they're breaking apart these giants. And I think when we saw that ant uh, part of the Alibaba Jack Ma's baby a financial company whose IPO got squashed at the last moment, maybe the beginning of this. Uh, we don't really know, but we can guess that they're starting to look pretty closely at how all of these things are tied together. So that was this month's China Dumplings. And now it's time for us to take our deep dive into that major aspect of China marketing that we think all global CMOs and marketers need to know. And this month, we're going to be focusing on localization. Let's start with maybe a, a quick discussion on what we actually mean by localization. And localization is something that is important to any brand that is operating in an overseas market. It's a delicate balancing act. You, you don't want to move too far away from what made your brand popular in the first place. But you also want to make sure that your messaging, for example, is resonating with the local target audience in your regions of operation. So it's something that at some point all international companies face. In China specifically, we've seen some really high profile examples of brands getting this wrong in recent years, particularly in the luxury brand market. Um, D&G is a good example. They they sort of it's an edgy brand. It's a brand that's known for pushing creativity and messaging, but they pushed it a little bit too far in China and to this day their products are not listed on any of the major e-commerce platforms, which is give it's a huge dent in their market share. So Mike, you've been working with foreign companies in China for almost 15 years. What's your experience with, with localization? Yeah, we've worked probably with 
hundreds of companies coming into China. And you see, first you see the same problem every single time. Uh, first is about the message. Second is their English website doesn't work. Uh, technical problems like you mentioned. And third, they've got the wrong products, mix, things like that. These seem like really basic things that I think brands can solve. But when you're dealing with multinationals, it's not that easy to solve. Sure. They need approval to make a new website and all that stuff. But eventually they do. So if you're a multinational coming into China or you're trying to improve your collaterals for the Chinese audience, just do it. I mean, I don't know why people wait for years and then eventually do it anyway. I think this is one of the advantages of having an rat sounding too salesy. This is one of the things where a kind of a third party agency can really be valuable because you've got your in-market sales team who are most likely native Chinese speakers and they want to meet their objectives. They want to meet their goals and they know the, the local market better than anybody else. And then typically with some of these large companies, they will have their global marketing HQ who are usually based in the country of origin and you seem to find that there's this internal struggle between them protecting the brand and the local team trying to almost go rogue sometimes in the in the eyes of the the, the hq team um in changing everything that they do to make it more relevant to the chinese market yeah because usually that local team might just be a sales team yeah. and they could give a hoot about the brand they just want to sell stuff <laughs> And the marketing team wants to protect the brand. So you've got this uh, kind of dichotomy there. So finding your right place on the spectrum is what we always recommend. So it doesn't have to be totally crazy local where people don't recognize the brand. But on the other side, if you're just using your standard website and you don't even translate to, Engl uh, to Chinese, uh, you're also totally missing the mark. Where along that spectrum do you fall? And your industry might have different standards compared to other industries. So it's, it's important to see what the standards are in terms of localization. A consumer goods brand like Pepsi is doing some very local activations while a big B2B multinational player is not going quite that far. I always like hearing the horror stories of things like this, Mike. Any examples of people getting it really horribly wrong? I, I think there's I, loads, think there's loads <laughs> um, from bad names, bad Chinese names. That's an that's a easy one. Um, people are always making fun of some of the bad names. Um, another one would just be, we've seen people come to us with copy that's been translated using Google. So that's obviously going to be horrible and needs a real, yeah, needs a real copywriter. I mean, would you do that if you had a, if you were coming from another place from China to the U S and you suck it in the Google translator, would, would you be happy with that copy? No, absolutely not. So to help you avoid some of the types of horror stories that Mike and I have been discussing, we're now going to give you our top six things that global CMOs need to know about China localization. Number one, get your messaging house in order. Uh, this is something we see frequently, particularly when we are working with uh, a global HQ team. Um, quite often, the, the key messaging pillars, personas, positioning statements, etc., which have had fantastic impact at home and in your other overseas territories, don't necessarily hit the same way they do here in China. 
a lot of it can be lost in translation, lost in its meaning, what kind of the way that it's interpreted can be very, very different here. So tap into your local team or your agency support. This is where their expertise is really going to come in. They'll be much better versed in knowing what local consumers are looking for, what their purchasing behaviors are, and what messaging will benefit the most. Number two, overcoming the language barrier and cultural distance. Uh, first, I just want to say I love the way that you say HQ, <laughs> Stephen. So speaking of language barriers, I'm trying to understand. How are you supposed to say it? HQ is how we say it. HQ. Exactly. <laughs> English is spoken in many parts of China, especially in the big cities, but it is not the official language here. And most people don't speak English. So if you want to reach your target audience, you need to have Chinese. And that sounds really silly, but that's what it is. And also to note that in mainland China, we're using simplified characters for writing, while in Hong Kong and uh, other places, they're using traditional characters. So you have to be, you can't uh, apply things to Hong Kong here automatically. Number three, get a feel for the social landscape. Do you know your WeChat from your Weibo? You've got to drill into what the social media platforms are here, how they are used, which different demographics are using them, and for what for. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, these are all blocked in China. So if they are an essential part of your strategy, you would need to get to grips with the Chinese versions of each of these and produce the content and the posts that are going to resonate with your audience. Also, don't forget, many of these Chinese social media platforms include an e-commerce element, which gives you another opportunity for sales when done in the right way. Number four, getting over the great firewall, as we call it. So it's not just the social media channels, but websites will also have problem uh, depending where your server is, depending who you're sharing your server with. It may be completely blocked or it may be really, really slow. And I think those of you who worked in China on this are pretty well used to it. So making sure that you've got a locally hosted server or someplace close will help your speed. And then also you have to look at um, your SEO strategy, everything in Chinese and redo those parts as well. So um, it's important that you understand about the Great Firewall and how it affects uh, the speed on your server. Number five, read the rule book. There are a lot of rules and regulations for China advertising. So a lot of companies get this wrong and they may get in trouble with the local business bureau or worse. So something that you need to make sure of is for sure when you're talking about an ad copy and things like that, you can't use superlatives like it's the best. You can't uh, compare to other products. You have to be very careful. You can't make claims, especially if you're in the medical healthcare industries, very sensitive areas or things to do with children. So really understand the rules, work with your lawyers and with your ad company to make sure that you're staying on the right side of the law. Number six, find your balance. As we said right at the top of this podcast, balance is key here. Some marketers go too far in their localization efforts and leave everything to the local office. And before you know it, the brand bears no resemblance to the global brand. The trick is to find that perfect blend or the happy medium. And each industry is going to have its own norms. The Chinese version of your materials need to appeal to your target audience. But at the same time, one look, you know it is your global brand. Evaluating all your marketing materials or having someone audit it for you is an important step to ensure your global alignment. 
That's just a scratch on the surface when it comes to Chinese localization, but it will give you a really good overview of what the essential learnings or the essential takeaways are. If you're interested in finding out a little bit more about localization for China marketing, we've got a blog that goes with this podcast, which you can find at www.brandigo.com. All that's left for me to say is thank you once again for joining us for this episode of the CMO's Guide to China Marketing. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today and found it useful, please give us a like and maybe drop us a review on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to join us on our social media, where you can find us on LinkedIn and Facebook at Brandigo Global or on Instagram at Brandigo underscore global. If you've got any questions about anything you've heard in this episode or the previous two episodes of the CMO's Guide to China Marketing, feel free to get in touch and we'll see you next time.